Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. Once again, it is a three time zone edition of Broadcaster Hour. We've got Kyle Crooks back at home in New Jersey uh, representing the East. I'm in the Central in Alabama and out West to Dallas Cowboys training camp. We say hello to California and hello to Brad Sham, the longtime voice of the Dallas Cowboys. And Brad, it's great to see you. How's everything going with training camp as football is almost here? It's uh, well, it's here. I mean, it is, it's literally here. And uh, the, the games will start Thursday night, but uh, there's never a bad day in Oxnard, California. Roger, I'll tell you that. So, Brad, what does it feel like to be back around training camp, you know, as a play-by-play announcer? What is this time of year like for you, you know, putting together the spotting boards, getting to learn the team, but just being around the team now, physically being around the team, uh, as opposed to last year? Well, as opposed to last year, it's a whole different you, – you just injected a whole new element into the question with that last – uh, prepositional phrase, Kyle. Um, I, I am fortunate to be passionate about this job and I love it more every year. So, uh, I've come to really enjoy training camp, not only because it's like a hundred in Dallas and 72 out here in Oxnard, but, uh, I know that would be reason enough actually, now that I think about it, but this is where the team is built. And I don't know how in professional football, you can, really understand how the team is put together without seeing these practices. And now once upon a time in the before times, uh, I would have spent a great deal of time out here talking to players, coaches, and executives off to the side and just getting some insight. And last year, of course, there was none of that because no team was allowed to leave their campus for training camp. And uh, we were literally as distanced from, everyone as you could possibly be everything was you guys know you everybody lived through the same thing everything was zoom and not in the same part of the building and so it's kind of halfway in between this year we still can't be on the field after practice we can't just walk up to someone and um, normally i would talk to a lot of assistant coaches on a daily basis and i would not with a microphone in my hand and i would say Am I seeing what I'm seeing with this guy? What about that guy? Um, Don't have the opportunity to do that, but I have had the opportunity to run into just a a few people in the parking lot and around the hotel complex out here in the last um, week and a half. And so I've been able to glean a little bit of information. uh, There was one player, one offensive lineman, who it looked to me like he just had a different stance, a different pass set than I've ever seen. And I ascertained that, uh, yeah, he did. He's working with some things. And so I wasn't dreaming that. I started to say I wasn't crazy, but I may be crazy, but not because of that. Um, and so, so it's things like that. So um, it, it's kind of not as good as it was in the before times and so much better than it was last year that I really don't feel like I have any, any right to complain. And now people, I think, uh, fans – you guys will, but fans, I think, don't really get that in terms of the work, there's really no difference between preseason and regular season. There is in the games, there is in the way they count in the standings and who plays and strategy. But in terms of our work, uh, there's really no difference. And, you know, of course, in college football, there are no official preseason games. So if you're if, if you're my buddy Eli Gold doing Alabama, then you're you're preparing the same way for Tiffin State in September that you are for Auburn. Uh, and and here we have more players to deal with in preseason. But this is where the team's built. So it's kind of like watching the foundation being poured. I love every minute of it. And we always talk about the players needing training camp to to get the reps. And of course, a lot of the players need training camp to make a roster. But as a play-by-play guy, these are this is the biggest test for a play-by-play guy because you have you, you have five deep almost at every position. How much do you enjoy the reps during training camp? How much do you really need the reps of training camp to just get back into the flow of things and and just how hard preseason games are to call as an announcer? So uh, when I was your age. Kyle, I was trying to, and I don't know what that is, but it doesn't matter because I'm kind of guessing it's not what my age is. And I, I tried to, and I did, I didn't try. I, um, I memorized every number on both teams. 
over time, I found out that that was a lot of wasted effort. I really didn't need to do it. And particularly doing, uh, being a, a team's announcer. So I always want to be uh, balanced and I always want to give the big picture and our whole crew does. But it's also true that when Dallas plays Tampa on the opening game, uh, nobody in my audience is going to really care um, who the backup left guard or uh, defensive tackle are for Tampa Bay. I have to know who they are because that might be the guy, the guy that makes the key play in the game and I can't get caught flat footed, but the audience doesn't care. So now there's fewer of them than there are in preseason, which is what you're asking about. So what I do is take the approach in preseason that um, the reason my audience is listening to this game is to find out who their team is going to be. They are, and especially early in preseason, they know how awful the Dallas defense was last year. And they want to know, is it going to be any better? And who are you seeing? And I've heard about the new guys, but I don't know who all of them are. And is, is Parsons any good? And is Joseph any good? And how about these second year guys? Are they improved? So I have the Steelers depth chart. I've got pages of notes that, that I subscribe to a service that helps uh, write up notes and I will study them. Uh, and I won't commit them to memory because for the Steelers, Roethlisberger is not going to play. So for the Steelers, uh, my audience doesn't much care unless the guy who's playing went to college or high school somewhere in their immediate area. So my focus is on the guys I've been watching in practice, and that's why I watch every practice. Now, when I start the year, this is my 43rd season doing Cowboy games. So when I, st and I start with mini camps, which they didn't have any of last year, they didn't have OTAs because of COVID, and there weren't any mini camps. When I normally start that, my process is that some guys change numbers. This year, a number of guys change numbers because the NFL allowed some changes in the, in the, in the numbering system. Uh, some guys leave and a new guy takes that number. And so I stand there and I look at, I'm trying to remember who these numbers are. And uh, invariably, it's never not happened that I stand there in OTAs and minicamp and I see a number and I remember a guy who wore that in 1988. And that's not going to help me now. So I've got to go through the process of flushing that memory. And um, so number 35, for instance, is Damati Casey, a safety they signed from Atlanta. Even though when my eye sees 35, the first thing I think of is Scott Laidlaw, who was a running back for their Super Bowl teams in the mid seventies. You know, Scott's not playing. So I gotta go, I've got to flush all that out. Um, and that's every year. So now we're now to the point that um, as I was, as I was going through the roster today, trying to kind of figure out who I thought was actually going to play in the game on Thursday against Pittsburgh in the hall of fame game. I, I now know a little more than I thought I did about who some of the new players are, but I, I will, I will add for, for any broadcaster aspiring or working, uh, get a good spotter. Um, you, you mentioned charts and, you know, the reason we have these charts is there are two reasons. One is because you can put some information on it that you can just look at and read. Uh, but the other one is, and particularly where a lot of broadcast booths are being put today, people are some, sometimes surprised to find out in the NFL visiting radio and sometimes home radio is in a place that's almost impossible to see the game. And so you really have to have a spotter who knows how you work and who you trust and uh, who will be able to give you the information that's on your board, know where it is and help you decipher who made that catch and who made that tackle and who's in the game now. And uh, that's really an important part of the process. 
Brad, you mentioned you're going into your 43rd season as the radio voice of the Dallas Cowboys. And I remember, you know, in my college years, sometimes early minor league baseball, I can remember every detail of a lot of games I called. And now as time has gone on more deeper in the profession, some of the years run together. Do you ever have to kind of brush up on some of your Cowboys history? I mean, you have lived it all. You've been the four Super Bowls, but do you at time is your recall still as sharp as it always has been? Yeah, I mean, and, and the, some of the things I remember are only important to me. And so you only, you have to kind of get rid of that. You have to, it's like going through statistics. I've got the NFL puts out a big thick pad of statistics during the regular season that they update after the Monday night game every week. My audience doesn't care about every number in there. And I have to learn to distill which numbers are important. Similarly with, with memories. I mean, it's one thing to sit around and talk about, uh, I remember, hey, remember that Philadelphia game? And what year was that? Was it 04, I think? What was the year that Donovan McNabb was the quarterback and they were getting kicked all over the field, but then Roy Williams intercepted a pass at the end of the game and ran it back and they won. It was the only time they led. I mean, that's, it, it is not really important that I remember much else about that game. And there are some games that I absolutely remember uh, and some of them I've tried very hard to forget and some of them just run together uh, but I but yeah my recall still good well that's outstanding well let's go all the way back then to, to when you were growing up I believe in Chicago what was your spark to try and get into sports casting what made you want to go down this path as soon as I realized as a young teenager that I was not going to be playing center field in the majors I wasn't going to be playing for the for the uh, Cubs or the White Sox uh, I, I then, I was born in Chicago. We moved away. We were there frequently during the summers and moved back when I was in high school. And of course the Cubs and the White Sox are both on television every day. And so that would be my favorite pastime would be to watch the games. And I had this epiphany when I was, I don't know, uh, 13 or 14 or something like that, that the announcers that I was hearing every day were the same guys. Well, that meant they were at the ball game every day. I want to go to the ball game every day. It's really all I wanted to do. Didn't have any concept of making a living or anything else. That that background shot behind you, Roger. That's my that's my beach. That's on a, on a the way I was raised on a beautiful spring or summer afternoon or evening. That's where you're supposed to be at the ballpark and. That was my way to get to the ball game every day. It wasn't going to be as a player, uh, but but I could do it that way, and that was my impetus. And for you, it started pretty early, right? I mean, you were on the air doing work as a sophomore in high school. I read. I was. Yeah, I had a. I went to New Trier High School in Winnetka, Illinois, and was very suburb of Chicago. And I was very lucky to go for uh, three years of my high school life to that school that had a radio station, had a little FM band and we broadcast all the games. And um, my sophomore year, I know I did a football scoreboard show. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was doing the baseball and basketball games. And uh, that, I then decided to go to Missouri because when I was leaving high school, um, there weren't really outstanding broadcasting schools. There were journalism schools. And Missouri at the time, unquestionably, was the best undergraduate journalism program in the country. And, and having that degree helped me get my first job. It's helped me uh, with other jobs. Uh, but that's when I started. Uh, I started when I was probably 15, 16 years old in high school and loved it, just loved it right away. And getting to Missouri, you said it's a great journalism school, but um, did you have the opportunity to, to get on air a lot at Missouri? Were they, they, they the opportunities there to do that there? There were some. Um, there, there was um, a student-run station on which I did some work in my freshman and sophomore years. I believe in my junior year, I actually did some disc jockey work for a commercial station in town. And then when you are in your last year, at least this is how it was when I was in school. I don't know how much they've changed it, but you, they, they had an affiliation with a radio station and a television station in town. And if you 
earned it, you could do some work for those commercial stations as a news reporter. And I did that as a first semester senior. I did uh, a lot of work on the, on the radio station with which commercial station with which the journalism school had an affiliation. And I did some of that as a second semester senior. And also I did the 7.25 AM local news insert in the Today Show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And, and, and that was great. That was a huge part of the education. So um, I, I get, and I also won an internship the summer before my senior year to a commercial station in Washington, DC. I wasn't on the air because the union dues were more than I was getting paid, but I learned more about being a reporter and a news gatherer in those three months than I could have any other way. And then all that time, we mentioned your Chicago roots and, and Missouri and the Midwest. What led you to Dallas originally? Um, my father's work. Um, I was uh, in the army getting out of uh, college. When I got out of my, I was in the National Guard when I was in active duty. Uh, and when I finished my advanced training, my folks had moved to Dallas and I didn't have a job. So I went home and, and I always tell people, Roger, that uh, I'm grateful beyond measure for my longevity. And, uh, and I've worked hard and, and I'm, I'm good enough to have had the job for all this time. I've learned how, but if my dad had been, had taken a job in Spokane or Indianapolis or Birmingham, the likelihood is that I wouldn't have the job that I have today. I, I, Dallas was where I got an opportunity. Now, um, I, I happen to be a person of faith. And so I don't believe in a, a whole lot of accidents from the universe. I think that's, that was part of the plan for me. Uh, I, I never had that conversation with my dad. I couldn't tell you what he thought about uh, them winding up in Dallas, but for me, that's how I got there. I got my first full-time job several months after I got out of the army with a station in Dallas because that's where I lived and I would not have had that. And that led to the next opportunity and so on and so on in the domino effect. And it all would have been different if my dad's work had taken him somewhere else. Certainly glad you did. Now your dad ended up in Dallas and you did as yeah, well. And yeah, you mentioned, you know, you had that opportunity with a sports talk station or a, a talk station and started doing some sports talk with that. What led to your Cowboys opportunities in uh, meeting Vern and getting to be on the radio as a color commentator first with the Cowboys? So the, the um, someone just asked me that the other day. How'd you get this job? Um, I, the station I was with in the early 70s, my first full time job doesn't exist anymore. A different station is on that frequency, an AM station. I was a news reporter and it was very valuable work and, and it was some hilarious memories. I actually left town uh, and, and did uh, PR and pro soccer for two seasons, one in 75 in Denver and one in 76 in Chicago when the Denver team folded. And while I was working for the Chicago Sting in 1976, um, a guy got fired at uh, the station KRLD that uh, I wound up going to in Dallas. And the biggest part of the job was doing a call-in show that had, was started to compete with the one that I had started on the smaller station that no one listened to. And so the, that was the biggest part of the job, five nights a week doing the call-in show, sportscast twice an hour, cover everything in town, go out and gather tape for the late, great Frank Gleber, who was the morning man and SMU basketball, which Frank and I shared. Frank did what, whichever games he wanted to do, and I did the others. And working with Vern on the Cowboys Network, working with Vern Lundquist doing uh, the first, that first year, 76, doing color on the road. Bob Lilly had just retired 
and he didn't want to travel, but he did color at home. So in the home games, I did pregame, halftime, and postgame. And I did all of those plus the so-called color analysis on the road. And um, that started in the middle of the 76 season. And I worked with Vern then, but again, it was just a part of my job. In uh, June of 1984, Vern was doing college games for CBS and they moved him to the NFL. And so I moved over a chair and the rest just, just happened. And, and how long did it take you to find your voice when you do move over that chair? Now you get a chance to the opportunity to sit next to Vern, who's, who's obviously very good at this. And, and then you move over as the lead guy. What was that adjustment like for you in the mid eighties? Well, th- there was no adjustment to that, uh, Kyle, because the adjustment, because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm built for. Um, and it's what I was trained for. The adjustment was in doing the, the, the color job. I'd never played. I mean, I watched a lot of games. Um, but I, I, I always tell young broadcasters and students to uh, monitor their own work. And I do it today. I listen to every game in the regular season uh, because that's how you detect speech patterns that you've fallen into that you don't want to repeat and things you're not doing as well as you can. And also for a positive, constructive self-criticism. You we're all fans. We listen and we know when we hear that we did something that we thought was pretty good. Well, let's be conscious of it so we can do it again. Um, I did the same thing when I started with Vern, but I didn't really have any concept of being an analyst. I was doing color. So I listened to a couple of those games and they were just unlistenable. It was just horrific. And I thought, well, I can't do that because I wouldn't listen to that. So I started shutting my mouth and opening my ears and listening to what Vern was doing and asking questions of coaches and players so that I could lend something as an analyst. I, I think by the end of that first season, I joined him in October of 1976. I think by the end of that year, I'd kind of gotten the hang of it. By 77, when we came back for the next year, um, I, I at least knew how to do it. Um, but the adjustment for me was that sliding back over uh, to the play-by-play chair. That's, that's where I'm supposed to be. And uh, in a couple of the most, mem- one, certainly one of the most memorable games I ever did was uh, in 1979, Vern was working for ABC and they put him with Sugar Ray Leonard doing a boxing tournament in Japan in December. And the Cowboys were in the middle of a big playoff run. And so I did play-by-play of a couple of games, including still what I think is the best football game I've ever seen, December of 79, Dallas and Washington. Uh, Last game of the regular season. I think they were only playing 14 then. Uh, winner is going to make the playoffs. Loser is going to run the risk of missing, which is what happened to Washington. And it was back and forth, just a thrilling game. Roger Staubach threw winning touchdown pass with two seconds left and the extra point uh, gave him the division title. And so that was like coming home for me to do that game in the middle of that, sort of toward the end of that season. And then we came to the playoffs and Vern was back from Japan and I moved back over into the chair that didn't fit me as well. And, and let me ask you this, somebody who has seen different types and, and generations uh, of football, just how much, when we talk about adjustments as a play-by-play announcer, it used to be a lot of two yards and a cloud of dust. And, and now you have, you know, five wide and, and fun and gun and quick pace and snap it quick in the play clock. How much is, has that changed? Just the, the tempo in which you have to call a game now as opposed to years past. The tempo is only marginally different. It's a good question. Um, You would start then in the late 70s and early 80s to get teams going no huddle. And certainly by the time the Cowboys were playing in the Super Bowls in uh, the early 90s, that was Buffalo's whole offense. So that tempo was pretty similar. It's not that difficult to 
learn to pace yourself, allow the analyst to do his or her job in between plays, watch the clock. Um, now, the style of play couldn't be more different. And the it would be an opinion, but the quality of play could be considered to be different. It's, it's essentially the same sport. And in many ways, excuse me, in many ways, it's not at all. But the pace of doing it, I don't think has changed that much. It's, it's more challenging to, um, there were some years in the early aughts when uh, the Cowboys management owned an arena league team. And I did those games on television for them. And you think you're going to do a football game, but if you've ever, if you've ever tried to broadcast arena football, which I love, uh, it's not the same game. Same thing was I've done a lot of soccer, indoor and outdoor. And uh, in the indoor game, it's just a different game, completely different pace, somewhat different rules. So you have to disabuse yourself of the notion that you're doing the same sport on a smaller field and, and view it as though it's a different sport. Doing a different style of football, outdoor football, um, it was it was not that drastic feeling uh, to me. And um, I, I would almost say that I was, whether, whether it was true or not, I was more kind of aware along the way while I was, um, there have been many, many years while doing the Cowboys that I've also done college games on Saturday. There have been some years that I've done uh, a team's games. I did Texas for a couple of years. I did TCU a year or two and A&M for a year, SMU a couple of years. And then some years working for a radio network um, doing a national game and it might be two different teams from anywhere in the country. And going from that on Saturday to an NFL game on Sunday is to me a little bigger difference and bigger feeling difference than going from the style of NFL football in the seventies to the style of NFL football today, if that makes sense. Sometimes in this business, we're really lucky to work uh, with legendary coaches and you got to do that with Tom Landry in Dallas, uh, both when you were the color analyst in the seventies uh, and then taking over as the play by play man in the eighties, just what did you learn from him? What was your relationship like with him? Well, that's an interest. That's two different questions. Um, I was, we were a bunch of us at, at dinner last night. We're talking about Bill Parcells. I have been fortunate to work with every head coach the Cowboys have had. And um, my relationship has been different from one to the next. Um, there is something to be learned from all of them whether it is in human relations, human slash public relations, and or football, X's and O's of football, probably learned more football being around Bill Parcells than any other time and also and also the 10 years that Jason Garrett was the head coach. Now I knew Jason when he was a rookie in the league in 98. So my relationship with him was much different than anybody else. And I could and would uh, ask him things, uh, football related things, strategy. And why did you do that? And what are you looking at? But it, that's a friend. So I could say to him, what the hell were you thinking? And, you know, you, you weren't going to do that to Landry or Parcells or, or uh, Jimmy Johnson. But there was something to be learned from all of them. From, from Tom, um, there was absolutely the way he viewed the game. And then there was the way he related both to media and to his players. Jimmy was an absolute master psychologist and did more by the time he got to Dallas, he did a little more coaching the coaches than he did coaching the players. I dare say at Oklahoma state 
or when he was at the University of Miami, he probably did more coaching. But probably by the time he was at Miami, he was already employing the style that he that he used when he came here. Um, Landry, Parcells, and Garrett were more hands-on with every aspect of the football team. It was a uh, like going to school, watching them, particularly in training camp. Typically, we don't see practice during the regular season. It's closed. I think Chan Gailey and Dave Campo were the only head coaches they've had who opened practice. Uh, but training camp is a real school, and you can learn from the teaching styles of assistant coaches as well as the head coaches. Landry Parcells and Garrett and particularly Landry and Parcells were and could be hands-on with any single part of the team. And I mean from quarterback to punter. Parcells was, uh, was something to watch walking into a punt return drill and, and instructing his punt returners on which hand to use and catching and carrying and I mean, nothing got past these guys. And, and not that the other coaches they've had didn't have the acumen to do that. I don't think they had the interest. Wade Phillips was interested almost, almost exclusively in the defense. And that doesn't mean he didn't care about the offense as a head coach, but Wade's a defensive guy. And he was going to let the offensive coordinator kind of carry the load in in that regard and uh, you know i think chan gailey was a little bit like that so there's something to be learned from absolutely every one of them did i answer that question you did yes or did absolutely. i just say a lot of words <laughs> no it kind of because i can do that too i'm pretty good yeah and kind of along those lines, it was a tough transition from uh, Coach Landry being let go near the end of his time, and then obviously uh, Coach Johnson and Jerry Jones taking over as owner. But how gratifying was that run in the early 90s and getting to call those great moments and Super Bowl victories for the Cowboys? You know, I think the, the – Roger, I think this job is not different from other walks of life where what you wind up remembering is the relationship with people. So for me to answer that question – you know, when I started doing this job, I was the age of the players. By the time we got to the 90s, I was like the age of their big brother. Most of the guys who started that run with the playoff team in 91 and then two Super Bowls and then in 94 when Barry Switzer was the head coach, uh, when they um, uh, played in the championship game, most of those guys were the same guys who were 0 and, uh, 1 and 15 in 1989. So to have a personal relationship with those players and coaches and to see what they left of themselves at work in 89, this is not a fun game for players and coaches when you lose a lot. It's not fun. Um, I remember talking to Norv Turner when he was the head coach of the Raiders and Joe Avizano, may he rest in peace, who had been the Cowboys special teams coach in the Super Bowl run. And he was with Norv in Oakland and it was a preseason game in Oakland and we were out in the field. Norv, Norv's kind of a typical, uh, coach really, um, borderline paranoid and wound up real tight on game day, but not in the preseason because it doesn't count. So we were kind of joking around. It was either Norv or Joe who made the observation that um, I said, boy, you know, it's, I guess it's great when you win. The exhilaration of winning is, and, and they said, no, winning in this league. And I, and I will bet that almost any head coach in college football would tell you the same thing. Winning in this league is not exhilarating. It's a relief. And losing is just agony. It just rips your guts out. And you spend the whole week trying to figure out how not to have your guts ripped out. And when you don't have your guts ripped out, it's just a relief. 
And then you're on to the next week of trying to figure out how not to get your guts ripped out. So I watched those guys in 89. Some of them, the core of the offensive line actually was, uh, was on the 88 team that was three and 13. Kevin Gogan and Nate Newton and Mark Tuane were three of the big parts of the offensive line. And they were on that horrible three and 13 team, and then one and 50. Well, to see those players, then Aikman and Johnston and Stepnoski and Ken Norton, Tony Tolbert, all of those players who came in 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 89, and then Emmett Smith came in 90, and then those guys went through what they went through to then get to the Super Bowl in 92. That's one of the most enjoyable spans of time that I've ever seen to appreciate what it meant for them because they just put all of their humanity into doing that job and only to get their guts ripped out and their teeth kicked in really for the better part of two and three years, but they kept working and they kept working. And then to see that payoff, that is, um, that was really a heartwarming period of time to watch. And before we get to your play-by-play philosophies, I'm just very interested in it. And obviously Jerry Jones a lot is in the news and uh, he's hands-on with a lot in the organization. I'm wondering about the radio broadcast. You know, how invested in that is he? How much does he listen? Does he give feedback? Does he, you know, what are the conversations like with Jerry Jones and how much does he pay attention to the radio broadcast? You know, I chuckle, Kyle, because I, I like to say that every three or four years, Jerry discovers me. Because he's not he's, he's he's watching the game, whether he's at home or road. He's not even watching TV. It might be on, but he's sitting there watching the game. He's for sure he's not listening to us. Then someone will tell him every three or four years, you know, those radio guys are pretty good, and and he'll uh, and sometimes there have been times when I've done a couple of games, network games on television. He'll come and say, I, you know, I was I caught you doing that. Tampa filling it. You're pretty good. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate that. Uh, the, the, uh, neither Jerry nor anyone who works for him, nor Tech Schramm before him, nor anyone who worked for him has ever, 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 ever told me what to say or tried to tell me what to say, good or bad, during a game. There was one year uh, in um, the, well, it had to be the mid eighties. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, mid seventies, late seventies, Randy White, who, who might be the best. I don't know if he's the best football player I've ever seen, but he, of all the Cowboy players I've seen in 42 previous years, uh, I always say, people ask me, who's your favorite player? And a lot of them are my friends, so you can't pick. But I always say Randy White's the one guy I would pay to watch. And uh, Randy was holding out. And, and we knew he was, I was working with Vern. And, and we knew he was listening to us on a bass boat out somewhere on a lake in the preseason. And uh, they, that was in the days when they played six preseason games and they just weren't looking good. And, and they were, you know, they were killing each other in, in full pads and, and hitting twice a day in training camp and Vernon and I were out there for the whole thing. So, I, and so the defensive line was not looking very good. And uh, I, I remember that Vern and I both said we had a brief conversation on the air where we, we said at one point during this preseason game, you know, they got to give Randy White whatever he wants, whatever he wants. He's got to be on this team. After the game in those days, the custom was after the game, everybody would go, around to the press box and the bar was open and, and tech Shram and his staff would uh, share a, an adult beverage with all of the reporters. And we walked into that uh, booth and Joe Bailey, who was the uh, vice president, Texas right hand. He walked by us. He just looked at us and arched an eyebrow and he said, whatever he wants, huh? And then that was the only thing that was ever said, but we knew, we knew they were listening. But I, I just, Kyle, I can't emphasize enough that no one has ever told me what to say, good or bad. They're aware. I know they're aware. 
I know that they, I mean, if you, now you can go on Twitter and see the club puts out hype videos and it's our calls. And I know that they, they, uh, the, the video department makes uh, video montages and have under all different head coaches that they show the team on Saturday night and they're my call. So they know what I'm doing. Um, but they, they, uh, leave us be, they, they, and I think that the reason is not that they don't care what we do and they know we're there. I really believe that, um, my, a big part of my personal philosophy in play by play is that you, uh, you ought to be fair. Um, you can be critical if you're fair and don't make it personal. Don't say that a guy was dumb for making a call or doing something. You can say, you can say, well, that, that sure looked like a dumb play. I don't like that word. I don't use it very often. It's pretty pejorative, but you can say that a guy made a dumb play, but don't say, well, what an idiot. Now it's personal and I've never made it personal. And so my experience is that if you're critical, Hey, players know when they screwed up. Coaches may not like it when you criticize a call, but they know if it didn't work. And uh, the Cowboys ran a play last year. They lost a game to Washington. They had a fourth down uh, and, and 12 at their own 20 and ran a fake punt and lost yards. And, you know, Babe Laufenberg, my partner, and I looked at each other and we said, Fred, I don't understand that one. That uh, didn't seem to be the right call to me. What do I know? And, and Babe would say, well, I know a lot, and that was not a good call. So, but we never say on the air what we would be saying to each other off the air. And so I think that the answer to the question is they know we're there, but um, if you're fair, you can say, you can tell the truth. I really think it's important to be able to tell the audience the truth. The audience knows they're watching the same game you are. They, you, you can't lie to them. Now, Vern, Vern had a saying that I adopted, and we used to say it all the time, and I, and I still use it today, that our job was to, was to do the game objectively from the Cowboys' point of view. And I believe that. I think my job is to tell their story. But it's not to lie to the audience. And if a guy's not playing well, you can say that he's not playing well. And you can even say, you know, someone's going to have to explain to me why that guy's snaps are down. Unless you know why that guy's snaps are down. And maybe you can't say, but then you don't say someone's going to have to explain it to me. Because there, there can be other reasons, contractual reasons, behavioral reasons, things that are nobody's business. So you have to be informed. You have to do your homework. But if you do that and you're fair, I think you can be honest. And, and how would you describe your, your play-by-play style on the air? Where do you feel is the line where maybe some people say you, you can't describe enough and some people say that maybe you could at times, just in general, in radio play-by-play in general, that people can throw in too, too many words and too many descriptions where do you lie kind of on that line of, of what is the right amount of description for football on the radio? Yeah. I mean, I think there's no question that you can say too many words. And that's one reason that I urge uh, announcers to listen to their work because uh, you, you can be accurately descriptive and overly verbose. And uh, there's just only so much. Remember your average audience on a radio broadcast is your average audience. I, I, and I say this all the time. I, I uh, picture that I am speaking to sightless people. I'm speaking to truck drivers. I'm speaking to people in duck blinds and cleaning out their garages and jogging by the lake. So they're not going to absorb every single word I say. This was really useful doing basketball on the radio. You, you have to disobey your instinct is to describe every single thing you see. If you're doing basketball, you cannot describe every touch of the ball. You just can't. And especially if you have an analyst, because he or she then is not going to get an opportunity to do any work. So in football, 
I think there are basics. I think there are things that you have to get across. Um, the, to me, the best football announcer, now this, this was a television broadcast that he did, but Pat Summerall was, God rest his soul, he was a friend of mine, and uh, to me, the all-time best. And he got his style from um, the, uh, Ray Scott, the guy at CBS who was famous for having, when the Packers were the team in the 60s, if you ever go to YouTube and watch films of the old Packers telecasts that Ray Scott was doing on television, what you would hear would be star, dowler, touchdown. And Pat, you would hear Aikman, Smith, touchdown. The rest of it, you got a picture for. And then the analyst is the star. Well, I can't do that on the radio. But what I can do is tell you, using as few words as I can muster to be descriptive, let me tell you what the formation is. Two receivers split wide right. Down and distance is the most important thing. Dallas at the Pittsburgh 42. Second down and eight. Two receivers split wide right, two tight ends left. Shotgun formation. Snap is back. Quarterback's looking around, looks to his left. I don't like near and far. Near side, far side doesn't help me because I don't know which, I don't know where I'm sitting. It's a radio. I'm, I need a better orientation. Quarterback looks to his left, throws it out, caught. Three yards short of a first down. Then you give it as much detail as you can, allow the analyst to do his or her work, and you move on to the next play. You absolutely can over-talk, and when you do that, you're going to just drown the listener in words. And so there are little descriptive adjectives and adverbs that things like uh, that, like that he he zips the ball to his right he floats it over the middle little things that just kind of tell you what you're looking at without using a whole bunch of a whole bunch of words and the listener gets the full idea and on the youtube version of the show we will show brad has shared some of the spotting boards that he uses for cowboys games uh, brad i am curious if you could just kind of talk us through what's important you to have on your spotting board and how has your style uh, kind of changed throughout the years well and the answer to that one, Roger, is really drastic. <coughs> Excuse me. When I started working with Vern in the 70s now, Vern had a magnetized, he had, what he had was a big magnet. His board was a magnet. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he had little bitty magnets that he put on there and he used little tiny size Avery labels on which he would physically, because I saw him do it, himself with a typewriter, Google it kids. It's an old machine that used to be used. And he would type the player's number, name, school, height, weight. And he would then peel the Avery label and put, okay. One of the things I learned real fast was that was a heavy board. I didn't want to carry that bag around. So if I ever got a chance to do it, I was going to do something different. And um, I was uh, moonlighting at a television station in Dallas in, in 78. And I went to the art department. And, and I basically just drew out a grid of 11 guys using tight ends over here, quarterback, halfback, fullback, defense, mostly a 4-3 front, corners, safeties. So I went to the art department. And I said, I, can you design me something like that's real light that I could put like on a foam or cork board or a, or a poster board or something. And they did. So I used push pens for a long time and, and, and I used different colored pens. I would use a red pen for the number and a blue pen for the name and a black pen for the information that I had on there. And, um, 
sometime in the early 90s, I was convinced to start trying to do that on a computer. And I, I resisted at first. I said, this is how I memorize the process of writing down the number and the name that helps me commit it to memory. I'm not sure if I do it on a computer, if it will work the same. So my, my wife at the time, um, who I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful is my very good friend now, uh, was way ahead of me on computers. And she designed what I have sent you is basically a program, an Excel program that she designed. And she said, just try it. So I, I took a spotting board from last week that I'd written. And then I did it on the Excel program and I put them next to each other. And I think my son was four at the time. And it looked like the one that I had handwritten. Uh, it looked like he'd done it. I said, okay, well, that's a whole different world. So I'm going to do it on computer. Then what I found out was, and everybody learns differently, but my memorization process was pretty close to the same. So the act of typing it in was still getting me the memorization work that I needed. Now, the literally, spotting boards are an industry now. And there are people who uh, do other people's boards. Now, that's been going on for years. I've known guys who, who hired out someone to do their boards for them. I don't want that. I, I, and I admit to being a dinosaur but I want to do my own board. That's how I learn. I also don't want a lot of stuff on it. So I was doing the cotton bowl last year and um, I originally was supposed to be doing it with Dusty Dvorak. He wound up doing the telecast because somebody got COVID. So, uh, but Dusty works with a firm uh, in Virginia that uh, I'll give him a plug, Tony Britt, uh, who does boards for college and professional football. And Tony knew that I was doing this game with Dusty. Dusty's one of his clients. He sent me this board. He said, hey, just wanted you to see it in case you wanted. The information on it was, was plentiful and really good and way too much for my eye. And what I've found is that what I want, it, so the way, I've, the way I do my boards, if I, if I do a pro game, I have the number in red, the name in blue, the height, weight, years in the league. I find a way to put in parentheses the other teams for which the guy has played and the school he went to. Those are all in black. I've got a, like a, a space for a a red or maroon notation for number of Pro Bowls. Or if the guy is from a city in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that's in our listening audience, I'll make that designation. But I want to look at my board and see clean. And I want to be able to find what I, what I need. It's, this only is right for me. I'm not saying... But what I did say to Tony Britt was, now all that information you've got on that board, that's really good information. Do you do just notes, not a board? He said, nobody's ever asked us. And so now I've hired him to do notes. So I've got five pages of notes for both Dallas and Pittsburgh for the Hall of Fame game. And it's research in compiling the notes. I will study them. But it's research and it's hours of research. He's got a big staff. So it's worth what I pay him to me to compile those notes from which I will learn for me. And I probably, Roger, I'm in the minority on this. For me, I want a clean looking board. I want to look at it. I Now in the NFL until this year, the numbering system was user friendly. So if I see a 50 number, very rarely is it anything but a linebacker, might be a defensive lineman. Then I would go do a college game and the nose tackle is number four. You're killing me over here. Um, 
and you learn to do it. Now the Cowboys middle linebacker is number nine. So we're in a brave new world. You have to learn to adjust. But I want the information that I need on my, and the information I need is not what Babe Laufenberg, my analyst needs. We're doing different jobs. He totally wants different information. He hires someone to do his board uh, and, and tells them what information to put on it. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's only what works for you. Getting into our final few questions for you, Brad. Uh, you had that period in the mid-90s where you called three seasons of Texas Rangers baseball, and you mentioned before how much you love being at the ballpark. Just what did you enjoy the most about that time and getting to work and broadcast baseball day-to-day? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is my partner, Eric Nadell, was the number two guy. He's, in, he's a winner of the um, uh, Ford Frick Award. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's been doing the Rangers about as long as I've been doing the Cowboys. Um, we, we met and became friends in the seventies. Uh, Eric went from being the number two announcer to the number one announcer when there was an illness in the family of, of the late Mark Holtz, who had been his partner. And so I got to work with Eric for three years and he is a technician now. And I tell him this, I told him this two weeks ago, I was with him. Eric Nadell is so good at detail and vastly different baseball from football couldn't be more different pace of the game the whole thing he's so good at detail i'm a better football announcer for hearing how he does a baseball game he makes me see an image in such an unobtrusive way you were asking before about using too many words and eric without even anyone knowing he's doing it is telling me what color the pitcher's glove is and how long and what color is the sleeve of the sweatshirt under his jersey and where his feet are on the mound and where the players are all positioned. I listen to other baseball announcers. I don't get this. Eric is a wizard. So the first thing I learned was that kind of detail sitting next to him in much the same way when I started working with Vern. And I was sitting right next to him and we were looking at the same game, but I wasn't seeing what he was seeing. And I had to learn to see that. And um, in, in Eric's case, I was sitting there next to him looking at the same field and he was seeing things I wasn't seeing. And those things are applicable um, to attention to detail. So that's the first thing that comes to mind was working with him and we're very good friends. And, and I said before, it's a, this is a, a business about people. Uh, and then I love baseball and I was around and here's the other thing I learned. I learned that uh, um, things are not always what they appear to be. It's great when you're covering a baseball team, that's a contender. And if you get to covering a baseball team that's playing every day, starting in March and ending in early October, and they're not very good, and you've got to give people a reason to listen to the radio every night, that will test you. And I learned a lot about that. And this will be the final one. I'm interested in your, your favorite road NFL venues to, to call games at. I know it's rare now to get a, a seat at the 50-yard line, right? Yeah, it, it's very rare. And, um, and I'm, I'm, Kyle, I'm interested in the fact that you said venue because a lot of times people will ask me, what's your favorite city to do a game in? What you and I say, well, look, I mean, I, I'm, I am a Chicago native. I love going to Chicago. I love going to San Francisco. Who doesn't like going to New York, especially on someone else's nickel? But you ask me where I prefer to be. I'm my first orientation is the booth, and so that's not close. New England is by far the best. Most writers now are up in corners of the end zone. And most of us are up in corners of the end zone. In New England, every broadcaster from network television to visiting Spanish radio is in a booth, in a long suite of booths, low and at the 50 yard line. It's the best seat in the house. And uh, uh, Baltimore is, un unless they've changed, we haven't uh, done a game there. I think the Cowboys did play there last year, but we weren't traveling COVID. Thank you very much. Um, 
but Baltimore was a really good seat. So you're looking for workspace. You're looking for actually two or three things. Uh, how much space have I got? Are we sitting like right on top of each other or have I got a nice long table? Is the engineer maybe behind me? And uh, how's the lighting? And uh, don't laugh and you both will laugh. Where's the bathroom? That's a big deal when you're on the air for three or four hours at a time and you get to be a little older than either one of you is. Better know where the bathroom is and how long it takes to get there. But the answer to your question, Kyle, is New England. Well, that's outstanding. Well, Brad, we have really enjoyed this past hour. And even for me as a, a lifelong Washington fan, it's been great to hear some Cowboys stories. And we do at least share the Cubs in common, our Cubs fandom. So that's certainly good. Yeah, but... I, our Cub fandom's at half staff right now. Oof, it's going to be a rough uh, second half of the year. But uh, we'll certainly get through it. But uh, we can't wait to listen to you again on Cowboys Radio. Just thank you so much for your time with us this week on broadcast. You're Brad. welcome. Thank you, Roger. Kyle, thanks for having me. Thanks, Brad. Our thanks to Brad Sham. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.